I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Analyzing Investment and Payback of Variable Rate and Moisture Probes in Strip-Till, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy Matters and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. And I'd like to extend the invite to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference, July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip-till. Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at striptillconference.com. While growing up on his family's farm outside of Ray, Colorado, Chad Godsey gained an early understanding of how important water is to growing a good crop. This knowledge shaped his professional career as cropping systems specialist with Oklahoma State University and the founder of Godsey Precision Ag, which provides conservation-minded water management, variable rate prescriptions, and agronomic consulting. During the last decade, Chad has helped transition his family's 3,000-acre primarily irrigated corn operation to strip-till to improve soil structure. He's also incorporated variable rate practices and soil moisture monitoring technology to apply water more precisely from center pivots. Based on crop water needs and current moisture sensor data, Chad has reduced seed populations on hilltops by about 20% and seen yields increase by 10% on the family farm. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, Chad shares the value and payback of variable rate and soil and moisture sensing technology in a strip-till system to include better management of seeding populations and water application to increase productivity. I just want to give you a, a little bit of background about myself. I was uh, at OSU or Oklahoma State for seven years on faculty there. So I did a lot of tillage research, a little bit of fertilizer research. I kind of grew frustrated, I guess, with the research that we were doing at the university level and the adoption rate, especially no-till in Oklahoma and some of the fertilizer technology that was going on, advancements in applications and sensing. We really didn't see an adoption of that out in the real world. I thought there was an opportunity there to kind of fit that need or fill that void to try to get some of that research out into the real world and get it applied on the farm level. And then I had an opportunity to move back and kind of assist in management with a family farm. And I don't write very many of the checks, so I often make recommendations. And then my brother and dad either tell me to go fly a kite or something like that. So, But I help out on the family farm as much as I can. A little bit of background in it. Majority of it's irrigated corn with some dry beans rotated in there, either pinto or kidney beans. And we've stri- been strip tilling since about 2004, 2002 time frame there. And my dad in the, in the mid-90s, late-90s was ridge till. So it's not like we went from conventional till to strip till. 
we've kind of always been reduced till since the late 80s. The majority of our soils in our area are very sandy, and I'll show you in a few slides how sandy they are, but yeah, relatively sandy, so we do require on or require uh, tremendously on, on irrigation. We do have uh, closer to Yuma, and I guess I, did, I failed to say, located in northeast Colorado, close to Ray, which is far northeast part of the state. We get closer to Yuma, a little further west and south of Ray, we get into heavier textured soils. So we have a wide range of soils in the area that we deal with. You know, especially when it comes to reduced tillage, tillage operations, every operation is different, especially when we look at soil types. My advice for people is always just figure out what you want to do. If it's strip till or whatever it is, no till, figure out what you want to do, what machine you want to use, and, and then just figure out how to manage that system. I've been making this comment a lot lately. You know, we get into to the world of precision ag data and, and big data. You hear that term all the time. And in a lot of instances, I care about what happens on our operation or my client's operation, his fields. I could care less what the neighbor's doing as far as hybrid response in his systems or fertility responses in his systems anyways. So my goal is really to develop a specific recommendation, whether it be hybrid or fertility related, seeding rate, my objective is to create a unique recommendation for that field in that operation. Most of the stuff we'll talk about here, I've kind of developed these processes or management styles based on on-farm research. I guess I can't stress that enough. That's really should be a key critical part of anybody's operation style is, is that on-farm research. I mentioned the relatively sandy soils, most of the stuff that we farm. This is a field, I'll talk about it a little bit later, a variable rate irrigation project we've been doing the last couple of years, but we grid sampled this uh, zero to 24 inches and got percent sand, silt, and clay on it. So our water holding capacities here range from 0.9 inches to 2.3 inches, and that's for the top two feet of soil there. So 96, 97% sand in a lot of our fields. So that gives you a little bit of background. Really, I approach everything looking at efficiencies. So whether it be nitrogen, you know, how can we improve nitrogen use efficiency? And then in the case of water, which we'll spend a lot of time talking about, it, water use efficiency. We obviously care about yields, but it's always in relation to nitrogen use efficiency or water use efficiency. And something that I found, especially with precision ag and a lot of the technologies, is that every producer is at a different point in adoption. So cookie cutter approaches do not work. And really, you just can't apply a lot of things to every operation across the board. It ends up not working, essentially, in the end. We're in an area where we have a tremendous amount of yield data and relatively good, clean yield data, I would call it. A lot of guys are setting on seven, eight, nine, or even 10 years of yield maps, and they just haven't done anything with it. So we rely heavily on multi-year yield analysis. And obviously, since we have irrigation and rely on irrigation, our year-to-year -year variability is not that great. Our high-yielding areas in the field are always high-yielding and vice versa with low-yielding. So we rely on multi-year yield analysis to delineate a lot of our seeding zones and our nitrogen fertilizer zones, which I'll show you here in a little bit. Typically, we make our variable rate side dress in application at about V6 or as late as we can get a toolbar over that corn and a tractor through the field. So we try to prolong that as long as possible. That's when we make our variable rate in application and then fertigate the remaining in throughout the season, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. I wanted to make a few comments about variable rate seeding. It's different wherever you go in the U.S. or, or even the world for that matter on, you know, the potential return of variable rate seeding. 
in most cases where, where we've made recommendations or done any research, whether it be in Oklahoma or Kansas, Southwest Nebraska, we really don't save a tremendous amount in seed. Of course, that goes back to how aggressive guys or producers have been in pushing populations. Somebody that starts flat rating at 36, 37,000 maybe has a, a higher potential to save money than somebody that just starts or that, that has an average seeding rate of 33,000. Kind of depends, but long-term averages, one to $5 an acre in seed. The big mistake I see, at least in our area and in maybe some parts of Southwest Nebraska, is a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to the specific hybrid and the amount of ear flex and give credit to those things and adjust on a year-to-year basis. But that's one thing that we always try to take into account. And it, as fast as corn hybrids change, it is hard to keep up with those and kind of determine our... We try to determine all of our own population response curves which makes it difficult when a, when a hybrid's only around for two or three years at most, usually. The biggest thing that we've seen with variable rate seeding is the increase in low yielding areas of the field. So these would be our, our sand hills that typically would be drought stress or moisture stress at the end of July when it was trying to pollinate and fill kernels. That's the biggest area that we generally see a benefit from is reducing population in those areas. This is some research that I actually had done or started in Oklahoma before I left there. To convince guys that variable rate seeding pays, we usually in year one start with just population strips through the field. And this is pretty easy to do. This, is, this was actually soybeans in this case. We had three different populations here and basically planted strips through the field. And then we actually just graphed these out, pulled the yield data out, and then graphed those across the field. That's an easy step to do that you can just do on your own and to justify if variable rate seeding would pay in the field is just do something as simple as that. And usually in year one, that's what we've got to do to convince guys that variable rate seeding is a good option. I'll just comment a little bit on, on the methods. We use multi-year yield history because, because we have that data and I feel like that's the best thing that we have. Obviously EC or EM sleds are another option. We generally don't use those unless we don't have any yield history. Yield history is free because those guys have those yield monitors on the combine already. One thing that we always do is put in population check strips in each of our zones. Basically, we would just make an acre or two acre plot in each one of those zones and either increase or decrease the population by, we typically will use 3,000, go 3,000 seeds above that in the case of corn or 3,000 seeds below that. And that's kind of how we determine our population response as well. So being on that size of an acre check plot, we feel like it's good enough into when we clip those out, we always clip the edges out so we're not getting any, you know, side effect from any of the other things. And you're always trying to fine-tune those seeding prescriptions. In, in most fields, our nitrogen management matches the variable rate seeding prescription or those zones. That's probably one of the things that I see happen the most. The biggest potential error is that somebody will change population, but then they won't change their fertilizer program. And in some cases, you may not notice it in year one, but if you're trying to push your good zones let's say to 280 or 290, whatever it may be, you've got to fertilize for that yield goal. And so a lot of times I see people change seeding rates, but then they keep their fertility management the same. So that's why our zones in most cases match up, especially our nitrogen management zones. So for nitrogen management, 
20 to 30 pounds of in is, is a starter. Side dress will vary, like I indicated, 30 to 100 pounds, and that's usually just 30, either 26033 if we need a little bit of potassium and sulfur, or in most cases, it's just 32%. And then whatever our remainder is, we'll put through the sprinkler, which that's usually 100 to, to 120 pounds of, of in through the sprinkler. And typically we figure 0.8 to one bushel of in for corn. The one thing that we've done over the last two or three years is we have enough data now where I feel comfortable that some fields we use 0.7 in those high yield yielding zones. A lot of our hills though, unfortunately we're still at one. And most of that comes back to probably leaching losses that we can't get any more efficient on those hilltops. We always sample our zones separately. So the, the high yielding zone will get a zero to 24 inch sample as close to planning as possible. A lot of people, consultants in our area, don't ever sample deep just because there's no confidence that it'll be there in June or whenever that corn crop needs it. But we typically take those in early April or as close to planning as we can. And we start out with eight being 80% efficient or assuming that we're gonna capture 80% of that. And then if we have a two inch rain or something in May, then we'll scale that back a little bit. We probably won't credit all 80% of that residual in. We've averaged about $10 per acre in nitrogen fertilizer. And the big thing here, that savings comes from cutting back. So if our yield goal for a field was 230 bushel, and that hilltop was getting 230 bushel, but it really only yields 180 usually, that's where we're getting our $10 an acre savings is by cutting back on those low yielding areas. And obviously, if we're trying to push those bottom areas to 280, it probably needs a little more nitrogen than 230 pounds in those low yielding areas to get to 280 or 300. One thing that we always try to do, not only for our farm, but anybody that works with us, is we try to do an end of the year analysis. So a lot of this technology gets pushed on people and there's really no follow through at the end of the year to say, was there an economic advantage for you to use variable rate seeding or fertilizer? So this is just an example from last year on one of our fields. Uh, our seeding rate varied from 27,000 to 34,000. Our average was 31.2. Seed was $1.75 savings. And this is compared to 32,500, I think, savings. Nitrogen, $11, and then total input savings, just a hair under $13 an acre. This is where I struggle of getting a good, a good analysis as far as, as increased revenue or increased yield. Because, you know, a lot of our increase in yields over the last 10, 15 years has come from hybrid or genetics. I don't argue that, and I don't claim that all of this, all the increased revenue or increased yield is from variable rate. If we do some math, essentially, really the only thing here, increased revenue from a yield increase. And this was, so this would have been prior to 2010. We had an average of 215 bushel. And now the last five, uh, six, seven years, we've had a long-term average of 230, 232 bushels. So it is paying, at least in our area and in our soil types, since 2010, little under 13,000 13, that we've saved just from input savings alone. That usually gets guys' attention right there as far as savings and inputs. Before I get into the soil moisture monitoring stuff, I guess we kind of started this year, and we've been doing it on wheat, using optical sensors on wheat. We've been messing with it in corn for the last two years, 
and now using satellite imagery as well or aerial imagery to try to fine tune that side dress rate. We're still working with that and trying to figure out how it fits into our operation or our clients' operations. So that's kind of a work in progress. We'll get back to Chad's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy Matters and TopCon Agriculture Application Solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. While talking with Chad at last year's National Strip Tillage Conference in Omaha, he said prior to adopting strip till, the biggest perennial challenge they faced on their family farm was losing soil to wind erosion. Although they haven't yet seen much growth in organic matter, covering the soil surface with crop residue is protecting the ground, and Chad is an advocate of staying off the fields as much as possible. After fall harvest, the ground is cattle grazed, and they don't touch it again until March. They want to build their strips within two weeks of planting, and sometimes they will strip till two days before planting. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Chad Godsey on utilizing and analyzing data from soil moisture probes in strip-till. So, so I'll get into the meat of the talk, I guess. The soil moisture monitoring, which is kind of what Jack wanted me to talk about mainly. So in, in our area, we typically pump from anywhere from 150 to 200 feet. That's where our water comes from. We, we irrigate out of the Ogallala Aquifer. We're in an area that's relatively blessed. We have deep, deep water and good water quality. Typically, an acre inch will cost us 4 to $5 an acre. I know that's cheap compared to uh, a lot of areas south or even into Kansas have got to pump a lot deeper, and their costs are quite a bit higher. My philosophy is, is to manage that plant available water in the top two feet. Our savings potential really comes from early season, so May and June, and then starting about right now until black layer in the middle of September, end of September. That's where we have potential, at least historically, to reduce the amount we pump. We'll talk about soil moisture probes a little bit. The one thing that I've found, and if you look back at the history of soil moisture probes in general, I mean, they've been around forever since the early 80s. But since early 2000s, when we really tried to use, start using soil moisture probes to monitor irrigation soil water status, a lot of times where we've run into trouble is that we have somebody sitting in an office trying to tell somebody when to irrigate, and they may be three or four states away. I know I've run into situations over the last couple of years where somebody in Iowa is trying to tell somebody in Texas when to go start their sprinkler, and that just, just, that just doesn't work. So, so none of the stuff I, I talk about here in the next few slides can replace those boots on the ground. They can be an additional tool. So what do we need to improve irrigation scheduling, soil moisture probes, talk about soil texture, water determining actual water holding capacities and hydraulic conductivity, local weather data, and then really a good basic understanding of all those things that I previously mentioned. It really helps. And the last thing I put on here is labor. So from what I've found on our farm is that if I try to watch or schedule irrigation for more than about six or seven fields at one time, I'm pretty ineffective. If you keep it to six or seven pivots then or wells, then you can really actively schedule irrigation. 
you get over that amount and is what you do is you just you start them all at the same time and turn them off all at the same time that's what happens in our operation anyways uh, and some of the guys i consult with the probes we use are decagon probes and they're a capacitance probe which I, I won't get into the theory behind them but basically they shoot electrical current through there and depending on the moisture content is how fast that current gets back there's a lot of capacitance probes out there and all of them claim they're better than others I just chose these because of the cost. I always like a probe that gets put into undisturbed, undisturbed soil. My, my preference is for a capacitance probe like this as opposed to a, uh, a probe that's got a porous or ceramic cup on the end. Just because in the sand anyways, if we break suction on that, on that ceramic tip, we're going to get errors. In the hard ground or high clay content soils, that's not an issue just in the sand. So. One thing to question is whatever probe you decide on or look at, what's the influence or what's the volume that that measurement is actually coming from? I'm not aware of a probe that claims, you know, that it'll, it'll read more than a foot or so radius from that probe. When you think about it, we're talking about a 125 acre field and 100 or 130 acre field or whatever it is. And you stick a probe out there and you're measuring moisture just in that liter or gallon of soil around that probe. One of the things that we always do is take a 0 to 24 inch texture where that probe is going to be located. This is actually from a variable rate irrigation trial that I'll talk about here in a little bit. But we grid sampled this on two and a half acre grids, 0 to 24 inches, and got percent sand, silt, and clay. And then Saxton at uh, USDA in Washington basically developed a lot of algorithms and equations to get your percent sand, silt, and clay into a water holding capacity and hydraulic conductivity. So we utilize those equations to get our actual water holding capacity. So in a lot of cases, you need to know how much your soil holds to make any reading off any of the probes meaningful. Otherwise, they're just a number. Hydraulic conductivity, we pay a lot more attention to this in our hard ground. This is from a very sandy field, but actually with some variability. So you can see on the east part of this circle, our hydraulic conductivity is over five inches per hour. So essentially, as, as fast as we can dump it on, it's going to run in. We don't have any runoff typically at all. Over on the west side here, a little higher clay content, our hydraulic conductivity is a little less than two inches per hour. I mean, it's not like got a tremendous amount of clay. But something, like I said, in our hard ground, we typically take that into account when we determine what our application rates are going to be. This is just a season-long glimpse of one of our probe locations, and I'm not going to talk about any of the data. But one of the things I mentioned earlier was just, you know, a lot of guys have tried soil moisture probes, you know, over the last 10, 15 years or 20 years almost. And it's kind of like they get a report or they get a graph that looks like this, and they kind of just throw their hands up and uh, they really don't get into the utilizing those to schedule irrigation. So you can see kind of a little bit overwhelming when you would get something like this and just try to put it into meaning. I want to spend my last few slides here talking about irrigation scheduling and the VRI studies that we've done. So in 2015, we started working with a producer. We had a variable rate sprinkler section machine that was Ranky zone VRI. I think we have 82 zones along that section machine. So not nozzle by nozzle, but we still had 82 zones. And then the Trimble system, we put on a Ranky sprinkler, and that Trimble system was nozzle by nozzle. 
So we use some of the things like I indicated. We grid sampled for texture, determined water holding capacity and hydraulic conductivity. I want to share with you the, the water use efficiency numbers and then to just some of the water usage numbers as well. Because I guess they kind of surprised me and got me pretty excited about BRI and just irrigation scheduling in general. One of the things that I was opened up, my eyes got opened up to last year was, you know, I was using boots on the ground and hand fill method for moisture as well as the soil moisture probes to determine irrigation and quantity amounts. And I think it was last October or something, I was sitting in the office and, and I was looking at ET from one of the local weather stations and I just happened to overlay ET over water applied and, and sure enough, it was pretty much right on, which I, I don't know why I never thought of that, but you know, ET's been around forever. You know, a lot of states have their own ET or some sort of ET scheduling platform. But this kind of opened my eyes and, and maybe gave me a possibly cheaper way to, to help schedule irrigation and make improvements. But we had a large rain here in the middle of June on this field. So this red line is irrigation plus rainfall events. We did spike above the cumulative ET of this corn crop in the middle of June there after that large rainfall. But then we followed pretty close. We were essentially applying what that corn crop needed. To give you a little background, so this is a producer that no doubt over-irrigated, but probably irrigated like everybody does in the area, to be honest with you. They just kind of irrigate, you know, like we always have in the middle of late June, middle of July, pollination, kind of turn the pivots on and don't worry about it. That was the philosophy prior to really scheduling irrigation. So two fields here, these two fields, estimated season-long ET was 24 inches and 22.9 inches. These fields were only a half mile apart. The difference here is, is just hybrids. Field B was a 104-day hybrid, and field A was a 108-day hybrid. That's the only difference there. Irrigation amount. So typically, and granted, last year was a wet, a wet year for us. Our annual rainfall is, is typically around 14, 14 and a half inches of rainfall is all. So most of the time, we'll put on 18 at least 18 or more inches of water a year. So last year on field A, we had 11.8 inches. Field B, we applied 12.6 inches. And really the difference there, when we turned the pivots off at the end of the year, that 108-day hybrid kept using some of the stored soil water. So we ended up using about the same amount for the field. We dried that profile out a little bit better on that longer maturity hybrid. So this is, I don't want to show a lot of yield data. I mean, this is just, the producer was still nervous about us under irrigating in some zones. So we had some full irrigation check plots in there or sectors, zones in there. So this is just basically indicating that we did not see a significant reduction in yield due to irrigation. Pretty good yields for the year in our area. We were down a little bit last year due to our fall weather, but no, no differences due to irrigation. So this, if you remember in my first couple slides, I mentioned something about water use efficiency and, and nitrogen use efficiency is kind of how we like to look at things or evaluate things and see how we can make improvements. If you look in 2013 and 2014, so this is before variable rate irrigation and before irrigation scheduling or intensive irrigation scheduling, he was at six bushels an inch and seven bushels an inch. In 2015, the first year of the study, and then last year, he was at 11.3 and 10.7 bushels per inch. So 
pretty remarkable increase. And, and I went back and tried to get as much data as I could from neighbors and, or other clients in the area. And typically, most everybody's around that six, five to seven bushels an inch, depending on the ear. So these were, these were relatively hard ground. I think I failed to mention that. So relatively high clay content soils in these two fields. So last year, we expanded to a sand circle north array. Same thing, we put in a weather station right at the edge of the field. Water applied, so this blue line's water irrigation plus rainfall. You'll notice that here in the early in the season, we were well above our cumulative ET or what that crop was needing. And we no doubt leached, and it was evident in the corn crop, we leached a lot of our starter and early applied in because of that additional rainfall. This is just another tool. Just, you know, if you're in a sandy, sandy situation, just plotting water received or rainfall received plus ET, cumulative ET, you can get a pretty good idea if you've lost your starter or some of that nitrogen is leached. So we started doing that on pretty much every field this year. So I guess I failed to mention, we always put a sensor in at six inches or four to six inches at an angle, 12 inches, 24 inches, and then 30 inches. That 30 inches is basically just to see and get an idea going back to how much ends leached or if water has moved below that 30 inch mark. So this is just an average of, of all those four sensors. So this blue line is 100% plant available water at this sensor location in this field. So you can see there's a lot of times and oftentimes in the sand when we put on a half inch or six tenths or seven tenths irrigation, you know, we'll spike up to well above 100% in that top four to six inches. That's kind of what those spikes are. But you can see we maintain stuff from about 90 to 100% most of the year. And then we had a huge like three inch rainfall event here in early September to spike stuff up. But so that, that's just a, a, a maybe a better representation, not quite as messy graph. A lot of times we'll put this together at the end of the year and look back and say, all right, did we do a good job or where can we make improvements? We had more zones in this field. I broke this down by zone, three big or larger zones. Here's the, the water use efficiency numbers by zone. We're anywhere from 11 to 12 bushels per inch, which affirmed the, the data that we had collected from those other two fields, South Array. This producer, he was one that probably irrigated a little more maybe than even some of his neighbors. So bushels per inch here prior to VRI and irrigation scheduling, 5.9, 6.5 bushels per inch. And last year with VRI and irrigation scheduling, we were at 11.5. So drastic increase. And the big thing there is it's hard to compare, you know, if we had an effect from an increase in yield. I think we have potential for increase in yield, not so much from a water management or just from an irrigation standpoint, We'll no doubt leach a lot less nitrogen by doing a little better job of irrigation scheduling early in the season and late in the season. So, so I think we do have a potential or upside in potential too, in yield potential. One of the things that, that I noticed though, we had three weather stations about 15 miles from a, as a crow flies. Two of the locations, Eckley, which is about 15 miles west array, and then the one north array, those weather stations, as far as the season, cropping season goes, those ET values were about the same. However, if you look at some of the daily differences or a two or three day period in there and pull those out, you could have easily be a tenth or two tenths different in a two or three day period, just due to cloud cover or wind. 
So in South Array, we actually, it was about two inches higher for the season, which was surprising. I put something on one of the earlier slides about that local weather data piece with using ET scheduling is very, very critical. If you're trying to use a weather station 30 miles away, it'll be okay, but it won't be near as good as it could be if it was within, uh, within a half mile or mile. A couple of the other things that I want to hit on and then hopefully we have some questions or, or comment, discussion. Deficit irrigation and plant population. A lot of the people we consult with in southwest Nebraska or South Array are, are already somewhat deficit irrigation or limited irrigation. So, and I know in Colorado, we're only maybe as early as next year's having some type of limit on, on the amount of inches we can pump. We wanted to kind of be ahead of the curve on that. Each one of our circles last year where we did VRI studies, we took plots out of there, which usually were three, four acres. The farmer was all right with us reducing yield due to cutting water back. We didn't cut back as far as I wanted to. And a lot of that had to do with the rainfall we received, which is kind of underestimated ET. So basically, each one of our plots out there, in the case here, we got 85%. So every irrigation, we were going to put on 85% of that ET value for that time period. And then so forth, 90, 95, 100%. We wanted to go clear down to 65%, but the way the weather patterns were, and as little as we irrigated, we didn't get that low. But... The, the interesting thing here is 13% reduction in water, we only lost 5% of our yield. So that's really pretty encouraging. I thought it would be a little bit higher than that. I didn't make this data up. I don't know, in all the years I've been doing research, I don't know if I quite got a response curve to look that good. Uh, but uh, that's the way it turned out. So we're continuing that this year. Hopefully we get it down a little bit lower to that 65 70% in cases or situations where we are limited in water that much, we've kind of got a better idea on, on what our yield impact is going to be. Thank you, Chad, for sharing your tips and strategies on utilizing some progressive precision tools within your strip-till system. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. And I'd like to again invite you to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip-Tillage Conference, July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to Strip-Till. Again, you can find speaker announcements and more information at striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on June 15th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series and a reminder that you can still register to receive our free Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Chad Godsey, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.